Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Good singing this evening. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, and if you want to hold your finger there, we're going to begin in Galatians 6, but we're going to be looking at Matthew 18 this evening. We're continuing what we began this morning and looking at the aspect of unity within the church. This morning we began by considering the aspect of the importance of cultivating a godly unity, a God-honoring unity in the church and doing so in, in our communication. And in doing this, we're, we're really looking at the, the questions I asked our congregation almost five years ago. If you've been through our Doorway Fellowship class, these questions are in that book. We mentioned them briefly in passing. Uh, several classes back, I had somebody say, you need to go over these every year. It's like, well, I'm not doing that. We cover it there. But I do think they're, they're worth reviewing from time to time. And we're considering that fifth question. We began this morning, will you refuse to gossip and attempt to solve problems biblically? We looked at the really more the negative side this morning, concluding with the realization that dedication to protect and promote spiritual unity requires that commitment to God-honoring communication. But I want to take some time this evening and consider that aspect of solving problems biblically. Because when problems come up, a lot of times, well, okay, so how do we deal with this? How do we handle these? And, and looking at that area, and what we had considered was the, the area of our speech to promote and protect the unity of, of our church family. And, and so I would like us to look this evening at Matthew 18, but I want to begin in Galatians 6, verse 1. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. It's an interesting verse, and, and, and sometimes we read this and say, well, okay, you who are spiritual. And we can always point to somebody else and say, well, that applies to them, not me. But recognizing the context, and one of the reasons I had you turn here is if you look at the context of what we're, we're considering, it flows right out of chapter 5. Chapter 5 is concluding with the importance of walking in the Spirit and not fulfilling the desires of the flesh. If you live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. And then it goes into, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a trespass. So the context of walking in the Spirit or being controlled by the Spirit is contrary to the works of the flesh. So what are the options that we have when we come to Galatians 6.1? You who are spiritual, well, either, we're either spiritual or we're walking in the flesh. Those are the options. It's not a, a tier of spirituality that, well, let the higher tier spiritual people deal with others. No, if we're not walking in the flesh, we should be walking in the Spirit, and then we are spiritual to help restore in a spirit of meekness. That those in the Spirit need to help those who get caught in the flesh. And, and th that really is the idea there, and we've considered Galatians 6.1 before, but the idea of if a person is overtaken, 
that, that they're caught off guard. They weren't anticipating this. They weren't expecting it. it it's like when you're, you're driving down the, the 202 or the 101 and all of a sudden this car comes up and you start to go over and all, you hear this horn and it's like, where did they come from? You were overtaken. That really is the picture here. It's not this meticulous planning that, well, I, I don't think I'll get caught. It's, it's really being blindsided by sin. And when that happens, those who are spiritual are to restore such a one. And so that's, that's what we find really kind of as a foundation. Now let me have you go to Matthew 18. Because I want us to see from this passage the, the aspect of solving problems biblically. And we need to understand the context of what is being laid out here. In Matthew 18, we're going to get to 15 through 17. We've looked at Galatians 1. But there's, there's a context that is being laid out in these verses. And, and we, we see this, this being provided for us. The first thing we see is that we, we have to develop an attitude of humility. That's the first five verses. It says at this time, verse 1, the disciples come to Jesus asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Interesting question. And, and what Jesus is going to do is promote an attitude of humility. But, but their question almost sounds like they're, they're asking from some kind of a scouting report on the competition. You know, when you know there are other discussions about who's going to be greatest, who gets to sit on the right hand, the left hand, it's like, okay, so who's going to be the greatest? You know, can, can we get some ideas and then know what we need to do to surpass them? And, and so Jesus takes a little child to him, sets him in the midst. It says in verse 3, And assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as, a little, as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the one greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one of these children like this in my name receives me. And the emphasis here is on that humility. Now, obviously, they're missing the, that opening question of who's the greatest. Misses the spirit of Galatians 5.26. Don't become conceited or envying one another. And so Jesus sets a living example before them. The, the humility of children, the trust of children, the attitude that we saw in the opening verses of Ephesians 4 this morning, that as we walk worthy, it's in a lowliness, a gentleness, a long-suffering, that, that really means to suffer long, to put up for a long time, to bear with somebody else in love, and, and not just bearing that, okay, I'll grip my teeth, I'll get through this, but it's in a spirit of love. And so that humility, that loneliness, the unity, it's, it's the idea of Philippians chapter 2, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each one esteem others better than, than himself. Look at the needs for others, their interests. It, it's, it's, it's the importance of that humility. This, this past week, I think Pastor Nathan shared it with the, the college students in one of our staff meetings. He shared the devotional in, uh, in, from 1 Peter 5, how God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And then followed it with verse 7, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. And he, he said, you know, the, the picture in there that we find of us as believers is we're sheep. Sheep are not supposed to be beasts of burden. And so we aren't to carry those cares. We're to give them to the master. 
casting our care upon Him. And, and so the attitude of gentleness. And so we see that there's a spirit of humility. And then we, we see that we're, we're not to cause others to sin. And, and you see that in verses 6 through 9, the, the warning here against sin. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the one who brings these offenses. This is the attitude here in, in these verses. And, and I think how important it is that we protect our children. I mean, we live in a wicked culture. The assaults on impressionable young people and children and, and, and a lot of what's going on by the LGBTQ crowd. And they use that cue to put a lot of perversion out there. So I, I just saw that a Georgia teacher was fired for reading a, a picture book on gender fluidity to her fifth grade class, to elementary students. And she was fired, and last Thursday, the state board upheld that firing. I was actually surprised. But, but please, but of course, the teachers' union is suing, and suing the district because of discrimination for the firing. And, and the teacher that was fired said this, the district is sending a harmful message that not all students are worthy of affirmation in being their unapologetic, authentic selves. No, they need to be who God made them to be. And, and, and you've got teachers asking children what gender they want to be. Do you want to be a boy or a girl or a puppy? And I wish I was kidding. But that's actually what's going on as well. They're called furries. In fact, there was, there was a school district in the Midwest that because of the problem they were having with furries, children identifying as animals, they passed a policy that the school administration could call animal control if the children weren't obeying. <laughs> it's like, is that really the solution? And I think of Romans 1.22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man and four-footed beasts. It's the rejecting of the image of God in man. And when they're doing this to children, I think this passage applies. Those who would cause children offend, it would be better for them if there were a millstone hung, hung around their neck than to cause these little ones to offend. But we have to be on guard. We have to be protecting our children. We have to be watching even in Arizona. Um, Brother Johnson was telling me of a, a, they're trying to get signatures on an abortion bill. And they used a similar one in Michigan, and they used it to deny parental involvement in anything, including gender fluidity. I don't think that, we don't think that wording is in the bill here yet, but they would love to put it in. We, we need to understand there's a great danger in causing others to sin. But we also have to take personal sin seriously. That's verses 8 and 9. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better to go through life lame or maimed rather than two hands and two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Saying, don't, don't allow your hands, your eyes, verse 9, to cause you to sin. 
So the context, we, we need to have an attitude of humility. We need to be very serious about dealing with sin and not causing others to sin. Then we need to understand the heart of Christ for the lost. That's verses 10 through 14, the parable of the lost sheep and, and the, the master seeking to find that one that was lost. The, there's that mission of rescue and restoration. And, and that's bringing us to this aspect of solving problems biblically. That we're not simply writing people off saying, well, you know, too bad. And it's just, you know, they're strained, that's too bad for them. No, the, the task of finding and restoring the strain is the heart of the Heavenly Father. To find that lost sheep. And, and this is why guarding the unity of the body is so vital. That we will be a place where spiritually wounded people can come for healing. That's why it's so important that we protect that. Because when somebody is hurting, they don't want to go where they're going to get hurt more. I've shared with you before, when I was pastoring in Maine and, and we had people that were coming and I was kind of wondering, why aren't they joining our church? Well, they're, they're coming faithfully. And, and then the more I heard their stories and how they'd been hurt in churches, I thought, I'm amazed they're coming at all. That's really a testimony of the grace of God. And we have to show that grace. And so we seek to restore with a spirit of gentleness, as Galatians 6 said. But the goal is restoration and reconciliation, not complacency and status quo. And, and so we, we see these aspects, which then brings us to the, the fourth area of respond properly toward those who sin against you. And I want us to look at this from beginning in verse 15, that dealing with that brother that sins... It says in verse 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. Now, now there are several practical things that we need to see here. Number one, it has, it's clear sin. We're dealing with, with sinful behavior on a personal level. I think this is our, these are practical guidelines. I think from a church perspective, there are times that, that we, we follow these guidelines, but there are times things are so serious that they have to be dealt with quicker. And you see that in how Paul deals with the situation at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul learns of an unrepentant, even shocking immorality in the church at Corinth, he immediately tells them to, con, to move to church discipline. So this is so serious that this one, and he says in, verse, in 1 Corinthians 5, deliver this one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And, and so understanding the seriousness of this, because of the severity of that, the damage that was being done to Christ's body in the testimony, Paul, Paul skips verses 15 and 16 of, of Matthew 18, and he moves right to verse 17. In fact, the latter part of verse 17. Let him be like the heathen. But the goal was reconciliation and restoration. But on a personal level, we need to understand the, the practicality. If they've sinned, now that doesn't just mean that we didn't like something. The standard is sin. It's like, well, I, I, they said something I didn't like. Well, maybe I'm being too sensitive. Or they did something I didn't like. Well, is it sin? If your brother sins, against you then go and tell him and, and if he hears you what happens reconciliation you've gained a brother now this is much easier said or read than done 
You know, it, it's, it's hard to go and tell him his faults between you and him. Why is it so difficult? Well, most of us don't like conflict. And people who do are the ones you have to be aware of. Because they often are the ones who are sinning against you. But it's easier to tell other people that will agree with us and hear our side and support us because they haven't actually got the whole story rather than go to that person alone. Well, okay, but there's, there's exceptions to this, right? Like if your boss says something that you think is wrong, then you go to coworkers and get a coalition first, right? If a faculty member does something against a college student, that student should go to other students in the dorm and talk about it before going to them. If a teacher sins against your child, go to other parents and see if they've done the same thing to them or other teachers who really aren't involved. You know, if a deacon or a pastor, then, then go to a different deacon or a different pastor, right? No, we go to them. You know, the, these are the situations. Yeah, but they're not going to listen to me. I wonder if the Lord thought about that. Look at verse 16. But if he will not hear. Now, the Lord, the Lord knows how our minds work. Then take one or two more. That by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the word may be established. And really, they provide another perspective. They, they, you've got somebody who can, is objective. Maybe you're not seeing it completely. Maybe you haven't really listened to the other side. And it's somebody who can say, no, let me, let me hear this out. You know, just because we don't like it doesn't make it sin. And if there's actual sin and it can't be covered, we'll talk about that in just a moment, then we need to go to them. And having the witness will either support that accusation or provide clarity to the situation, but now there's, there's another level of understanding of what's going on here. And if we don't go, we fail to follow God's Word. And when we fail to follow God's Word, we're either saying, I don't trust Him, or that we don't want to do what's difficult. Because He gives us the pattern. And if we don't trust him, if we don't obey, then we're the ones sinning. Because whatsoever not of faith is sin. And to him that knows to do good and doesn't do it, that is sin. And so we understand there's a, there's a, stand, there's a process here. Now, now, verse 17 is going to move to, from this corrective discipline beyond the informal or the less formal to a much more formal correction in a church context. We're involving the church family at that point. And ultimately, if the person is unrepentant of sin, then we're to view them as a, as it says in verse 17, let them be like a tax collector, a heathen, or that they're viewed as unsaved. So how do we treat the unsaved? We pray for their salvation. Now we go back to that lost sheep. But we don't treat them like a brother when they're behaving like an unbeliever. But when it comes to confronting, dealing with these, there, there are some things that I think can be helpful. Questions, and I've shared these before, but I think they're, they're helpful for us. Questions to ask when dealing with difficult situations. Number one is, do I have the facts? 
When we have to deal with a difficult situation and we're, we're looking at, well, go to your brother. It's like, well, I don't know if I want to do that. Well, here are some questions to ask. Do I have the facts right? Proverbs 18, 13 says, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. If you jump to a conclusion before hearing the whole story, that isn't smart and you're going to be embarrassed. And if you're a parent, you know how this works. If you've ever had children that have had conflict, the first one who comes and tells you about that altercation provides a very vivid picture of why they're the victim and they're innocent and it's not their fault. And then the other sibling comes. And you find out there's a few details that were left out or a few pieces that were kind of skewed. And and you find out that, you know what, there are two sides at least to every story. I mentioned last week my uncle who who passed away, went to be with the Lord. And uh, early on when I was working with college students, he, he was an educator. He had a doctor's degree in education. And he loved to talk about education and, and really teach. And, and he was dealing with adult education. And he was sharing with how dealing with situations where you get two different perspectives. And he said, here's what you need to do. And I remember the first time I followed his advice. He, he, he told me to write down what they said and say, I'm going to take that and use it. And I remember the time I was, I was a dorm supervisor, a resident assistant, and somebody had come and given this horrible account of what this other person had done and said and how they behaved. And, and, and I said to him, I said, this is really serious because it was. What they told me was serious. I said, I'm going to have to confront them about this situation, but I want to make sure I have the details right. So I'm going to write down exactly what you said they said. And then you can sign it that this is what they said. So when I confront them, that I I don't want to trust my memory and get things wrong, I'm going to tell them this is exactly it. So now tell me again what they said. And you know what? It changed. It wasn't quite the same story. And I I said, okay, now I'm going to write that down. And as I started to write, they said, well, you know what? And it changed again. And this happened several times. And by the time I got done, there really wasn't anything to write down. It was not nearly the situation that had been presented initially. And I never had to have their neighbor come and examine them because they had already examined what their neighbor would say. Proverbs 18, 17, the first one to plead his cause sounds right. It seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. Folks, always remember there are at least two sides to every story. Do I have the facts? that we need to ask that question. Secondly, should love hide it? We talked about this briefly this morning from Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sin. It covers those offenses. That, that not everything has to be confronted. That there, there's a, a spirit of humility. But, but 1 Peter 4, 8 says, Above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, as I said this morning, this doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to sin, but it does mean we don't broadcast it and we realize people are people. That, that there are going to be those ups and downs. And don't let it be our lack of gentleness or humility or patience being the reason that we have to confront. That's why that's foundational. In gentleness, you who are spiritual, restore. 
Because if we're not being humble or gentle, then, then we really may not be doing it for the right reason. And we'll talk about that in a moment as well. But, but we have to ask, should love hide this? Is it, is it really hindering spiritual growth? Is it hindering their growth or my growth? Or is this something that love needs to cover? Third question is, is my timing right? Proverbs 15, 23 the, the second half of that verse especially, a, a man has joy in the answer of his mouth, but a word spoken in due season, how good it is. You know, some problems are solved more easily with a little time. Now, now that doesn't mean we just keep kicking it down the road, but if you're tired, if you're frazzled, if you're frustrated, that may not be the best time to deal with something. You're, you're probably more apt to vent than to edify. I find it interesting in 1 Kings chapter 18 that, that you, you have this amazing story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, the victory there as he defeats the prophets of Baal. He, he prays and fire comes from heaven. And then he prays and the drought ends and this deluge comes. And then you go to the next chapter and Queen Jezebel wants to kill him. And he runs away. And he runs out to the, into the desert and he asks God to take his life. He said, it's not even worth going on. And he asked the Lord to kill him. And isn't it interesting, when you read that chapter, God doesn't confront Elijah about his attitude problems right away. An angel comes and gives Elijah some food and then he sleeps. And then it happens again. And then he travels. In fact, he travels for 40 days and 40 nights to get to Mount Horeb. And it's when he gets there that God asks him, Elijah, what are you doing here? He, he, the Lord doesn't jump on it immediately and say, Elijah, don't you remember what I just did yesterday? There was some time. He needed that distance and Elijah's answer is, Lord, I have been zealous for you. Look at all the work I've done, and, and I just can't do it all by myself anymore, and there's nobody else. And then the Lord reveals his power to Elijah, and he, tell, he gives Elijah assist, an assistant in Elisha, and he also points out that there are 7,000 Israelites who had not bowed their knee to Baal. The, the I'm the only one left just didn't cut it. But the Lord waited, the timing of it. You know, we, we need to ask, is my timing right? Is this the best time to deal with this? Now, we need to deal with it. If, it, if love cannot hide it, it needs to be dealt with. But we need to choose the right time, the right place. We need to make sure that there's time to talk, that if it's of a sensitive nature, that there's, there's that confidentiality that we're avoiding the gossip and slander that we discussed this morning, but we also don't want it to be picked up inadvertently, that we don't want sensitive matters discussed where people can hear it unnecessarily. So we, is my timing right? A fourth one is, is my attitude right? Are, are we really seeking to edify, speak the truth in love, or do we just need to get our point across? I mean, we can get so worked up because we've been thinking about it ourselves and we've been meditating upon it, and that's really what we're doing. We're meditating that we get so worked up that when we, we go, I mean, it's just both barrels and they don't even know what hit them. They didn't even know there was a problem. And while they should have known, 
Well, then speak the truth in love with the goal of edification, not self-expression. And it's best to talk in person if possible. You know, emails can really be misinterpreted. Text messages are often skimmed. And we need to understand, you know, if we're not communicating clearly, we're not going to solve the problem. Communication barriers are going to be a problem. Several years ago, we were having our sprinkler system replaced at the house, and, and I had gone out and looked at the work they were doing, the, the, the men that we had had come in and had contracted to do it, and I looked and I saw they had damaged one of the pipes in their digging. And it was still open, but there was a, there was a gouge in this, this PVC pipe. And, and so when I, I came home, I saw they had filled in the hole, and I went out, and I said, now, you, you fixed that before you filled it in, didn't you? And, and they said, oh, yes, yes. We, and so I went in and told my wife. She said, did they understand you? Well, English was not their first language. I learned it was also not their second language. <laughs> and, and so she went out and talked to them in Spanish, and they're like, oh, no, no. And so they started digging again. It's like I had expressed myself but I had not communicated. We need to make sure that in our attitude, we're, we're seeking to engage, not declare. That we're looking to discuss, not demand. Ken Sandy in his book, Peacemaker, says, the more you engage another's heart, the less you declare his or her wrongs, the more likely he or she is to listen to you. If our goal is reconciliation rather than venting, then we need to make sure that our timing is right and our attitude is right. Which brings us then to the fifth one, are my words loving? Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. Are we really speaking the truth in love or just speaking our mind? Proverbs 15, 4 says a wholesome tongue is a tree of life. That our desire is to see growth. Do we speak life words or death words? As we said this morning that children's lie, sticks and stones will, may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. No, there is the power of death or life in words. So do we use life words? Do we, do we speak grace words? The, the let no corrupt, rotten word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for necessary edification, that you may minister grace to the hearers. You know, that means that in dealing with difficult situations, many times we have to plan our words. We have to think through what we're going to say so that we speak wisely and carefully because we want our words to spread grace. So we plan that they are gracious, that they are clear, and that they're constructive. Doesn't mean we don't deal with hard things, but we do it for the purpose of edification and reconciliation, not just to prove a point. It helps to anticipate what might be the responses. Many times in counseling, I'll talk with somebody, say, okay, when you talk to this person, how do you think they're going to respond? Well, if they respond that way, then, then how should you respond so that you don't just react. How do we go through that? And looking for a wise response and asking for input because what we're seeking to do is find reconciliation. And then number six, 
Have I asked for God's help? James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. You know, sometimes we're, we're quick to share our concerns with others. Are we as quick to share them with the Lord? We might even ask other people to pray for us. Have we actually prayed? If we lack wisdom, ask. God gives. Say, well, okay, but is this really that big a deal? Yes, it is, actually. Because on a personal level, if we fail to advance with Christ in Christ-empowered maturity, we're also going to miss Holy Spirit-formed unity. Ephesians 4 is telling us we're to grow in maturity for the unity that the Holy Spirit has given us. And, and we're, it's more than just solving a dispute. It's, it's seeking reconciliation in a family. So are, are we the type of person that advances the unity described in God's Word? Are, are we asking, these are questions to ask in, in difficult situations and recognizing this. And, and then the, the rest of the passage, and we're not going to take time to look at it this evening, but the rest of the passage deals with forgiveness. From verses 21 to 35, you, you have the, the, first of all, the parable on forgiveness, and then there are several principles. And I'm just going to bullet point through them. We're gonna, uh, for sake of time, we won't, we won't go through all of this. But understanding that as it comes to this, Peter is, is actually trying to establish what is the currency for forgiveness. That, that's his question in this passage. That, that He says in verse 21, he says, Well, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Shall I give him, forgive him up to seven times? He says, you know, what's the maximum that I have to pay for forgiveness? You know, at what point is it just a bridge too far? And the Lord says, I do not say seven times, but 70 times seven. He said, don't even keep track. And then, then he gives this parable. But what you find in this parable is there are several principles that, number one, forgiveness is free to receive, but it's costly to give. It says in verse 27, then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. It, it, it didn't cost the servant who owed the debt anything, but it cost the master. It was costly to give. We see as well that forgiveness experience must be expressed. See that in verses 28 through 33, that, that this one who was forgiven then did not forgive somebody who owed him a much smaller debt. Not an insignificant debt, but it was insignificant by comparison. Well, when he was forgiven... He needed to express forgiveness. In verse 34, it says that his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. What we see is that an unforgiving spirit results in misery. How many people today are eaten up by bitterness? That unforgiving spirits bring their own torture. There are emotional problems, physical problems, they just can't get along. But we also see in this passage that forgiveness characterizes Christ's followers. Verse 35, So my heavenly Father also will do to each one of you from his heart if you do not forgive his brother his trespasses. Those who have been forgiven are to be forgiving. 
And we see that. And Lord willing, we'll look at this in more detail next Sunday morning as the, the, the next question is dealing with being slow to take offense and quick to forgive. But forgiven sinners forgive sin. Dave Harvey in his book on When Sinners Say I Do, dealing with marriage and understanding the characteristics of forgiveness that we would strive to solve problems biblically in a spirit of humility, recognizing the seriousness of sin, seeing the heart of the Father that is seeking the lost, dealing with sin seriously but carefully with the goal of reconciliation and then also being willing to forgive. Is that our spirit? Oh, let that be the testimony of Tri-City Baptist Church that we truly would be a place that strives for unity and helping those who are struggling, that we would see the unity of the body of Christ. Let's pray together.